Welcome to the third episode in a series of podcasts from Lancashire Archives. In this episode, archivists Victoria McCann and Catherine Newman are joined by Professor Robert Poole, Professor of History at the University of Central Lancashire, to talk about accusations of witchcraft in early modern Lancashire. We started by discussing the Lancashire witch trials of 1612, which were recorded for posterity by the clerk of the court, Thomas Potts, in the wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancaster. Mass witch trials were almost unknown in England. There had been a mass witch trial in Scotland in the 1590s when James VI of Scotland, who would later become James I of England as well, believed that he had been uh, uh, plotted against by witches on the North Berwick coast who had nearly caught, who had caused uh, storms which intended to sink the, the, the boat that was carrying his wife from Denmark to Scotland. And he personally carried out a number of interrogations. I think something like 100 Scottish witches were convicted and many of them executed. And James personally interrogated a number of them. And he um, subsequently wrote a, a manual on the correct methods of lawful and successful and discriminatory uh, witch hunting, discriminatory in the sense of being able to discriminate properly between who is a witch and who is not. And that book, book Demonology, is actually quoted in the, the, the book of the trial of the Lancashire witches, which was an official document published to justify the unusually large scale trial of witches that had happened in Lancashire. And from some of the phrasing it's that's used in the, in the Lancashire trial, it's clear that the Lancashire magistrates are trying to demonstrate that they are putting into practice in Lancashire James I's uh, precepts for efficient witch hunting. And therefore, and in that way, to rid Lancashire of it's it's reputation to use a slightly later phrase is one of the dark corners of the land mm. where the Protestant Reformation hadn't properly penetrated, which it probably hadn't actually, certainly not in the Pendle area. Uh, so what was unusual about the, the trial of, I think it was 19 witches were actually put on trial, although not all of them came to trial in, in 1612, well, was the large numbers at once. There are in Lancashire archives plenty of individual instances of, of, of witches being put on trial as there are in other parts of the country. Um, but what was unusual about the trial of the Lancashire witches was that they were rounded up and effectively persecuted by the local Puritan inclined magistrate, Roger Noel, who had family connections with Puritanism. And it was clearly um, when he came across one fairly ordinary instance of witchcraft, he was immediately on the alert on the key vive and unusually came along to take part in the interrogation of um, uh, Alison Davis, as it was the young teenage daughter, and subsequently extended the net to include a whole collection of people, some related, some not in the Pendle area, who were subject to a mass trial. In, in uh, uh, The trial was in the August of 1612, but most of the uh, events, the roundup happened either side of Easter 1612. So it was fairly ordinary witches in the Pendle trial, subject to an exceptional persecution. The um, testimony of Jeanette Device was central to the mm. 1612 trial. The child witness, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I remember you saying that that was something that was really that worried a lot of people yeah. um, at the time. Yeah, I guess if I mean, we should probably start with the document, which is the mm. original book of the trial, the wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancaster by Thomas Potts, the clerk of the court, who says that he was asked to write it by uh, Justice Bromley, uh, one of the two judges. And there are signs in that that he is he is defending what's happening. Mm. And he actually says there were some people cried out in court and he mentions that there were um, people who had complained about about some of the verdicts and he simply says let no one doubt what happened because here I'm giving you all of the evidence it's quite clear they were guilty they're convicted out of their own mouths we have individual witches who've themselves given testimony which is what James says you can't you're not never going to convict these people they're involved in a diabolical conspiracy you need their own evidence mm. to do it and the voices of children are admissible providing it's done in, in, in a certain way so the whole document exists in order to justify the trial and it's actually it's the most complete evidence-based account of early modern English witchcraft that we have most there's been a lot of work done on this literary scholars have looked at all the texts and and there are only about four you know sort of longish 
accounts of witchcraft trials and three of them are clearly largely fictional they use fictional ideas fictional methods of writing and there are odd bits of evidence put in but really just just that they add the names and one or two details of evidence to kind of validate previous ideas and jaundice though it is the wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancashire is really the only one that actually carries extensive amounts of first-hand evidence rather less than you think only just over half of it is actual direct new evidence it, it feels like it's a lot more but it, but it's not um so the very existence of the document is evidence of the persecution and evidence that this was exceptional well, i mean it's quite lucky because the size court records for that period are there's a gap yes um, so we wouldn't know about it no you yeah. might almost say a suspicious gap what i find interesting is that i had a look at the acts the parliamentary acts to see what the witchcraft act actually said and it's the the 12th act passed by James after his accession really obviously right at the top of his list to do something about witches and against all sorts of other acts including an act to restrain all persons from marriage until their former wives and husbands be dead which is about 100 lines of text the Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits is only four lines. The penalty for practising of invocation or conjuration, etc. Conjuration or invocation whereby any person is killed or lamed, declaring by witchcraft where anything is hidden, procuring unlawful love, etc. The second offence is felony, no forfeiture or dower inheritance, trial of a peer of the realm. So that's it. That's mm. all it says, using the demonology as well. It's obvious that James was covering all the bases and using these as a springboard. So what you said about this being almost like um, a test case, a case that will now stand as the benchmark for all future cases mm. is really intriguing. And especially that use of children's evidence, because I think there was there was a later case where they used a child's evidence. People questioned it and they said, no, well, it was done in Lancashire. So we can do it now. What you're saying about the survival of the document and the way it's become the authority is really interesting, especially as Vicky points out, in the absence of any other supporting documentation. It's almost like they've made it so that this is the only thing we can turn to. I think perhaps that's a, a, a partial list of some of the provisions of Act because I've seen, I've seen a longer version. And the important thing, what it changes from previous Acts, is the Elizabethan and, and Henrician um, yeah acts before then simply closed a loophole in the law that had been left by the the repeal of the heresy act at the reformation and basically said look if you kill somebody by magic or witchcraft then that's as you know it's an offense as well as killing them in any other way whereas the the james's act actually makes it it provides the death penalty for having anything to do with an evil or wicked spirit now you could argue that your spirit was good but you know that's not going to take it's very difficult to to prove isn't it <laughs> And so what it does is it transforms the offence from one of causing harm, but by magical means, to one of being involved with the devil, to a, a kind of heresy charge. And that's very much in line with the Malleus Maleficarum and, and James's ideas about, about uh, prosecuting witches. And that makes it it's almost impossible to defend against. So when the victims of the Lancashire trials are saying, oh, yes, yes, a devil did come to me. I was in my sleep. I was paralysed. Evil thoughts came to me and I was tempted many times to take revenge on my neighbours. But only when they were when they were really, really bad to me, I remembered that. And in my heart, I wished evil upon them. And then it happened. They thought they were offering up a mitigating circumstance, if you like. But in fact, they'd said the one thing that was certain to convict them. So clearly that the witches were not themselves up with the, with, with the new law, even if, if they've been up with any law. One of the things that called into question about the trial is they're supposed to have met at Malkin Tower, planned to blow up the castle and kill Thomas Covell, mm. which is an extraordinary idea anyway, mm. isn't it? And they were very much people living on the outside of society. Mm. Um, mm. So th the idea that they would know about the law, you know, a bit of a stretch really, isn't it? Yes, and, and that meeting is what transforms a lot of scattered instances of witchcraft by people who knew each other into a conspiracy and i think that's why we get this you know ridiculous charge 
yeah. brought forward, but it also makes it into Lancash Lancashire's gunpowder plot. James had been the victim of a, a gunpowder plot in London, and so you, what you, the authorities in Lancashire are saying, look, you know, we know how to pull gunpowder plots as well. You know, yeah. hey, here you are, Your Majesty. You know, please approve us. And I think as well because it, it sort of brings in the, that aspect to it, the Reformation, doesn't it? And Lancashire's place is very much a sort of Catholic stronghold. We have a letter in the archives from John Sumner. He was an agent for the Farringtons of Worden. And it was written on the 6th of November, 1605. It, it, it describes in detail the discovery of the gunpowder plot. That felt like quick work to get that mm. information up to Lancashire. Um, but if you look at it in the, that context, then it's almost like, a, you know, a warning. It was either misdated or sent beforehand. Either way, it's interesting. The letter itself immediately identifies the threat as a papist threat. And the reason the bonfires were set in the streets of London through the night was so that they could hunt, the, the authorities were hunting Catholics. Mm. And it, it very clearly says this is a papist plot right from the very beginning. There's no equivocation that Guy Fawkes or Johnson, as he gave his name when he was dragged out of the cellars, was anything other than a dyed-in-the-wall Catholic. Yeah, it positions Lancashire as a known hotbed of dissenters, papists and ne'er-do-wells, which we're quite proud of. <laughs> yes, and, and the quoting of the spells and the charm, I think there are two or three spells and charms quoted in, in, in the book of the trial, and they're all recognisable as garbled versions of old Roman Catholic prayers, mm -hmm. clearly the, the older women in this family, the, the grand, you know, the grandmothers, old Demdikes and old Chattocks have been around at a time when, despite the Reformation, you know, Worley Parish was still run by a, a recusant Catholic uh, Catholic priest. Uh, so they were they were genuinely the uh, the repositories of ancient knowledge, if you like, ancient being Roman Catholic prayers. Yeah. So you can see the role that the role that they had. The Catholic Church had a tradition that allowed for an element of superstition, mm. and mm. then that that was that was lost yeah there's a, in early church whether it be roman catholic or anglican faith there's very much a performative element so if you think about the act of doing penance for whatever your your crime may have been usually around sex or not having sex or, or being transgressive in some way the notion of wearing a white sheet, stand, being paraded down the nave of the church and standing at the front of the church during the whole of the service and then being stood outside the church, penitent, barefoot, wearing supposedly a white sheet and nothing else. It's got a real drama to it. So this, this element of performance is one of the elements that seems to have been stripped away, as you say, through the Reformation. And these are comforting rituals. Quite a few of the documents that we've got quote things that have obvious either Latin or, or Roman origins. There's one which is quoted from about 1620, and it's an incantation to stop bleeding in man or beast. And there's a little poem that you have to recite after putting a linen rag under your armpit. And it starts, there was a man born in Bethlehem of Judah whose name was Christ, baptised in the river Jordan of the water of the flood. And the child was meek and good. Child of such a body, of such a person, best stand in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost. And then you destroy the rag that you've put under your arm, having said the words three times, and you're cured. So it is an amalgamation of mysterious, exotic and intriguing words and phrases and elements of performance which as Vicky says they, they've been left a vacuum. It's almost like it gives it legitimacy as well. What hasn't really been looked at is the existence of so-called cunning folk or white magic that, that accepted magic and that comes through in our records I think. One of them's described she's she's not described just as a witch she's described as a blesser. She was all, long known to be a blesser so that gives you the sense that it wasn't something aggressive or fearful. This woman used her gifts, if you like, for positive effects. And that's that's where you get that interpretation. As you said, you, you, you know, the witches were saying, yes, I, I might have been affected by a spirit, but it wasn't necessarily an evil spirit. And this is somebody saying, well, I, I use my gift, but I only use it for good. 
where the interpretation comes is where somebody decides to actually pick that bit apart. There's an examination taken at Standish of um, one Thomas Hope of Aspel. He says that when he was 10, he was taken with one John Hale of Frodsham, pulled unto Rome, where he continued about seven weeks. And after came unto Frodsham, and he saith that, that at his being in Rome, he was washed in a chamber with water, by virtue of which water he hath helped horses, beasts, and some children, and cured their maladies. But what's interesting about this is that he's not the one being accused. He's been asked to Marjorie Mullineau's house because she's worrying she's she's being bewitched. And he sees Isabel Hyten and he points the finger at Isabel. There another case in LL, Jeanette Wilkinson, the man she's reported to be bewitching goes to a skillful woman to find out if he is actually being bewitched. On one mm. level, is that acceptable use of, of magic? And then it tips over into something that's malicious. Yeah, one suspects that a lot of these cunning folk start out as having you know, known the old prayers, known the old spells at the time of the Reformation. It's probably a big expansion of cunning folk who are who are not up to speed with the with the with the new, you know, sort of eternal life or damnation, you know, version of religion, and who keep these old spells and other charms and other ways of of healing going. And because they are associated with Bells and charms and 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 prayers. They they become, if you like, outlaws is the wrong word, but they're no they're no longer mainstream, and yet their beliefs continue to be held by large mem many members of the community. You've got the case of this man who, when he wants to reverse what might be a spell, then he goes to a cunning woman. Okay, you've you've tried other things, and so okay, well we'll have to go to one of these people then. So they they have a belief system which allows for it, even if it's not any longer part of their everyday life. And mm -hmm. and this is what the the you know old Chattox and old Demdike um, mm -hmm. seem to have been doing in the in the families who were, go to trial in 1612. But once you have that that belief, that's an interesting notion that they actually believe that they could do harm if they wanted to, and that ties in with charity refused. Well, this was the this was the thesis, uh, thesis at the heart of Keith Thomas's book, Religion and Decline of Magic, which is a very big book on witchcraft, which, which pioneered the social interpretation and um, which came out in 1971, 50 years ago this year. And actually reading that book as a first year student was actually converted me to doing history rather than economics at university. <laughs> um, but yeah, the at the heart of Keith Thomas's social interpretation of witchcraft, this charity refuse, which which is really good because it, on the one hand, it takes these little incidents of village life, but on the other hand, it's it fits them into this wider ideological contest, the contest of Protestantism and Catholicism, and the two different ways of approaching the poor, incorporating them, perhaps the poor being holy, to excluding them and and, and almost demonising them, and the central piece of that is that Keith Thomas quotes. Reginald Scott, who was who in the 1580s, a Kentish gentleman who appears to be the only genuine witchcraft sceptic, the only thoroughgoing rationalist. And, and Scott talks about old women who have begged, they're marginalised, they come to people, they, they beg a cup of milk or whatever it is, you know. And then in time, they become vexatious to their neighbours, they refuse charity, there are arguments and crosswords, the witch curses the householder, later on the householder falls ill or has some misfortune, the witch believes she's done it, they are both deceived, he says. Yeah. And this is at the centre, Keith, uh, Alan McFarlane, who was then Keith Thomas's pupil, then wrote this whole big book on this social interpretation of witchcraft. But the important thing is, it, this first appears in Reginald Scott's book, which is called The Discovery of Witchcraft. Mm -hmm. Discovery, as in the sense of witchcraft revealed, OK, so you buy it to find out how to do witchcraft <laughs> and you find out that the whole thing is a hoax, just as in the modern way. What is the title of the Book of the Lancashire Witch Trials, it is the wonderful discovery of witchcraft. That word wonderful meant that it was a wonder. A wonder is something which is which can happen naturally, not something that is impossible. It can happen naturally, but it's been brought about by divine agency. Witchcraft found out with divine agency. This is a wonder. This is a discovery willed by God. And what it's saying is in the title, it's a, a reference back to Reginald Scott. Scott was wrong because here we have a wonderful discovery. God is involved in this. That section you refer to, Vicky and I were talking about it earlier because I realised I've actually got a facsimile copy of Scott on my bookshelves, which I'd completely forgotten I'd got. And it's uh, chapter three, who they be that are called witches. 
One sort of such are said to be witches are women, which be commonly old, lame, blear-eyed, pale, foul, and full of wrinkles, poor, sullen, superstitious, and papists, or such as know no religion. These miserable wretches are so odious unto all their neighbours and so feared as few dare offend them or deny them anything they ask. They used to go from house to house and from door to door for a pot full of milk, yeast, drink, pottage, or some such relief, without the which they could hardly live, neither obtaining for their services or pains at the devil's hands, with whom they are said to make perfect and visible bargain. It falleth out many times that neither their necessities nor their expectation is answered or served in those places where they beg or borrow, but rather by their neighbours reproved. And further in tracts of time, the witch waxeth odious and tedious to her neighbours. The witch on the other side, ex expecting their neighbours mischance and seeing things sometimes come to pass according to her wishes, curses and incantates being called before a justice, wherein, as you say, not only she, but the accuser and also the justice are foully deceived and abused as being through her confession and other circumstances persuaded to the injury of God's glory that she has done or can do that which is proper only to God himself. Exactly that perfect interpretation of even if they think they can, they can't. It's a brilliant book, as you say, because it, it sets out all these things and then just refutes them. But that's one of the, the most powerful bits. And one of the things I find really interesting is that papists are right up there again, identified as a symptom of the disease. So we've got that narrative already set right out, right from the very beginning. What are the re possible reasons that it, it tips over from people accepting magic to it being something seen as something malicious and, and people pointing the finger. And Robert Oldfield of Preston, he states that he heard James Brewerworth say that in times past he had a stone which had rakes like blood upon it, but neither heard him say where he had it, how he got it, nor of what virtue it was. Besides, he heard him utter name, other idle, frivolous and foolish speeches like a man distracted or troubled in his mind. He's thought, well, yeah, he has said these things, but he has some mental health problems. There's another case where they all they get this, a sweating fever and they bring Mother Nottle in to heal and one person gets better but then somebody else falls sick and then she comes in again and then that person dies, the others recover. It's clearly a virus or an infection mm -hmm. or an illness of some kind that they don't understand. In one of the quarter sessions documents regarding a woman called Joan Enderson, that there's a little memorandum that says that the wife of John Enderson of Ashton hath of long time kept a most bad and disordered house receiving into her home all the knaves, whores and thieves in the country and all the stolen goods that came to her house. And if there be no cause taken for the reforming of these bad demeanours, no neighbour can live near her but in great peril of their mm. lives, the overthrow of their children and servants and loss of their goods. It's civil transgression. It all seems to come down to civic disputes. And whereas these things in other times might have played out in the church courts with accusations of fornication or ill calling, it seems at this period, for some reason, giving them the label of witch is almost like a, an easy finger pointing just to inconvenience someone by making them go through the court trials, even if there's no expectation of, of a result. Do you, do you think there's anything in that concept? Is that something that we can say the evidence supports? I think that's 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 quite an insight. Yes, the, the, the fact there were no longer any church courts meant there really wasn't anywhere else for disputes like this to go. But I think what the interesting thing is we've got here a whole lot of instances from Lancashire of individual witches who are charged when when disputes have gone wrong, when something bad has happened, it needs to it needs to get pretty serious. Something needs to go badly wrong with a relationship or with a spell or something like that for it to get to for it to be prosecuted in the first place. So you've got a you've got a regular undergrowth of, of, of routine of all over the county of, of things like this going on and of cunning women or just women who happen to to, to get involved in dispute falling out with their neighbours. We've got a small minority of them actually turn into trials for witchcraft and then we've got the very unusual thing of this swoop in Lancashire where we get I think, 19 witches all put on trial at the same time which is which is entirely exceptional so I think we've 
you know, we've covered a lot about what might be going on at community level. And what it shows is that the, the beliefs of the witches and the beliefs of the people prosecuting them are pretty much aligned and, and the villagers as well. There is no separate belief system that the witches have. There is no separate cult of any kind. These are not separate, a separate dangerous sect. You don't need, you can certainly find plenty of parallels with the persecution of women, inequality, unfairness, ill treatment, stereotyping and so forth back in that period and in the present day. But we don't need to posit any kind of underground or, or feminist witch cult. The, the no. really, these are entirely explicable within the belief systems of the day. But when it comes to the trial of the Lancashire witches, what we need to do is to explain why it went up yet another level into a mass yeah. witch trial, uh, which was taken up actively, enthusiastically by authorities who normally didn't like to be bothered with this sort of thing. The things that we're quoting are um, evidences that were delivered to the quarter session courts and the quarter session courts in Lancashire are roughly equivalent to what you might think of as magistrates courts now. So they're the lower level of court. Uh, none of the crimes that were heard at quarter session courts could be punished by death. They weren't capital crimes. It's only assizes courts, the important courts, that could uh, carry out the sentence of death. Um, and so it's often the, the quarter session courts hear all sorts of disputes. And again, it's that sort of community dispute that we're talking about. It's theft, it's um, assault, it's assault by turkey we've had that assault but yeah one of our favorites is somebody was hit in the head by a turkey when somebody was trying to steal his christmas birds uh, in 1625 it's people keeping or disorderly houses dancing on a sunday when they shouldn't be a lot of it is this sort of small level stuff where the the penalty will be either a small fine or an instruction to keep the peace and if you don't keep the peace, the, the, the case might be escalated. So the things we're quoting never went any further. The Whether the prosecution was held up, whether the accused was uh, found guilty or not guilty, there was never any instance of those crimes being progressed to a higher court and therefore the punishment be death. And in many of the cases, we don't know the outcome because what we've got is the witness statements. We don't necessarily have any comment about, yeah, this, this witness statement was held to be true and so on, such and such thing happened. The distinction with the 1612 large trial is that it seems that it went straight to the assizes. We don't have any quarter session records relating to it. And I wonder if that's something that's notable by its difference, whether that's part of the point you're making about this almost being a trial that was undertaken for perhaps a different reason, perhaps a political reason. Well, the question is, th these mentions of witchcraft in the quarter sessions, are they actually being tried under the 1606 Witchcraft Act or are they being tried for other things and when witchcraft is, is introduced? I, I would suspect that they're probably not being charged under the 1606 Act because I think there's a punishment of being in the pillory for lesser forms of attempting harm. But if you have consorted with an evil or wicked spirit, that's death. Well, there is a notion, isn't there, that under James, the pushing for witchcraft trials started very strongly because it was tapping into James's own agenda, his own paranoia, as you've said, the, his own feeling of, of deliberate targeted persecution but through later of his reign he lost interest is not really the right phrase but certainly by the time Charles had come to the throne his attentions were very much elsewhere. Janet Davis is appears again 20 some years later uh, from being the accuser in 1612 there's a theory that she becomes the accused in is it 1638 at which time nothing really happens. It's 1633 to four. So is there any, you know, is there any logic to that? Is there any backup for that position or is that 
a bit of a sort of scholarly gloss. It's it's a great thing to find that the name Janet Davis is there again mm-hmm. in the list of people in this second great witchcraft roundup in 1633 to four that also some of them end up being sent to London. Um, there's yeah. actually even more witches, but by this time even the Lancashire authorities have become sceptical and, and uh, Charles I even more so. But I think Janet Davis is said to be a married woman, so the evidence is actually the other way. And uh, it's probably quite a common name. I think uh, I think Device Davis Potts was a southerner and there's several instances where he's clearly mishearing Lancashire dialect. And I think when people said Davis, he wrote Davis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yes, when it comes to the, uh, I mean, the 1634 three to four episode is turned into it's turned into a play by Hayward and Broom, quite well-known London playwrights, the late Lancashire witches, because these, some of these witches have come down to London and in a bit of a sensation. What are Lancashire witches doing in the Tower of London? And so they make this really a joke play out of it to ridicule what might have been going on in Lancashire. And they use dialect. They use dialect to show how stupid some of these characters are. Now, there's a long tradition of Lancashire dialect writing, but none of it dates from within 100 years of this. And there's also a long tradition of using dialect for comic characters, usually comic characters who are actually like wise clowns. They look stupid, but actually they turn out to be smarter than they look. And so the the joke is turned, you know, on on the cultural prejudice against dialect. Um, But in this case, you've got this is the uh, probably the earliest instance of deliberate use of Lancashire dialect. And it's used to ridicule. Lancashire for being really behind the times by continuing to persecute witches. And the, the story there is is in the, I mean, there's an essay in the Lancashire Witches volume by by Stephen Pumphrey, who, who argues that James had actually intervened sceptically in a couple of witchcraft cases that there were in other counties, um, witchcraft trials, which were designed to please James. And James had actually, for some reason, seems to have gone rather cold on this and, 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 and intervened rather against the prosecutions. And then when Lancashire attempted to please him again in 1612, there's no evidence whether it did please him or not. But it may well have been that Lancashire was just a little bit too late in doing (laughs) this. And interestingly, the next time he comes to Lancashire, he came to Lancashire twice in his lifetime. Once was when he was first king and he chose to come down the western side of the country. And uh, when he came to Carlisle, of course, he was a Scotch robber. They were in Carlisle. They only knew the Reavers and the border raiders. It's only when he arrives in Lancashire that he re- receives a warm reception. So he's got this good feeling about Lancashire. And so when he goes north to Scotland again in 1617, he goes through Lancashire and on his way back home again, he stops and he's fated at Horton Tower and they do various things to please him. And uh, one thing is that the um, there's been a, an argument about whether rush bearings, the parish summer feasts, should take yep. place on the Sabbath day. And there's a big lobby from Puritans trying to persuade him to ban rush bearing completely on the Sunday. But there's also a counter lobby uh, and some people stage a rush bearing ceremony with with virginal women dressed in white to show what a what a lovely, nice community ceremony this is. And James comes down against the Puritans, says you can do rush bearings on Sunday as long as divine service is over. So he's, it's one in the eye for the Puritans then. Probably would have, this book would have been put in front of him, but there's no evidence that he showed it any any sign of failure at all. Do you feel that the, the sort of geography is also a contributory factor to this notion of otherness and isolation there's much made of that especially today in the sort of pendle witch route which is one of the less less developed parts of lancashire which is saying something in, in 1612 it's a the, the, it's the really the parish of worley which is one of the biggest parishes in the country and um, it finishes up sometime after this 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 age with with about a dozen different sub chapelries. Hardly anybody can get to the, the the central church at New Church on, uh, in Pendle, Worley, and and so it's it's just isn't evangelised. The, the the new religion really hasn't there isn't the physical means or, or the money in this very poor moorland parish to evangelise the population. And it's economically it's, it's um, cattle and cloth territory. It's pasture territory. There's a fairly poor living. So you've got this combination of social economic circumstances and lack of lack of culture, lack of religion, lack of modern ideas and so forth. And then uh, and then this clash between them. And I guess it may be that in that part of the world, you know, Roger Noel, the magistrate, was particularly keen to demonstrate that his part of Lancashire, far from being backward, was at the forefront of modern ideas of witch hunting. And as Noel himself had a, a cousin who was a well-known Puritan minister and as the 
as Jonathan Lumby's shown in his book, The Lancashire Witch Craze, he's, he's, he's shown the connections between Roger Knoll as a neighbour of the Starkeys and the Starkeys having been the victims of witchcraft. Roger Knoll was very much on the lookout, was, was aware of, 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 thing, of things like this. And so because of Roger Knoll's agency, what was a few scattered local cases of witchcraft, many of them involved in the same families. Uh, Roger Knoll interrogates one person after another. He gets one family member to incriminate another. He gets neighbours to incriminate others. And finally, he gets child witnesses who were clearly kept for some while and then brought in rather later. And it's the child witnesses, um, James and Janet Davis, who are probably something like 14 and nine or 10 years old. We, can, we don't know. We can only guess. And uh, it's clear from the, the early witness statements that they've sort of at the time, their, their, their grandmother and their mother have been rounded up and put in prison. They're well aware that um, there are some teeth and a bit of a skull in the house and they decide to bury them and then decide to come clean about it, perhaps to get themselves off the hook. They confess, they show the local constable where these bits of skull are buried. That looks very suspicious. And they're reading between the lines, you would guess that they're then leaned on mm -hmm. to incriminate others in order to get themselves off the hook. And um, there is that uh, wonderful novel by um, by Livy Michael. Um, is oh, it The Pendlewitch yes. Child? Uh, it's The Malkin Child. The, 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 yeah, Malkin Child, yeah. which is so brilliantly fills in a gap in what we know. It takes it takes the story of Janet Davis and imagines what might have happened to her. It picks her up when we first know about her. Then it picks her up when she turned when she turns up giving evidence unexpectedly against her own mother at the trial. And there's a very moment when the mother is, is is having having refused to incriminate any of her own family members confess she confess herself but she doesn't give any evidence against anybody else and then when she's confronted by her daughter she simply breaks down and just just confesses to everything and and, and goes away broken and, 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 yeah. and maybe maybe the child was there to see her mother hanged and maybe it was only then that it came home to her yeah. what the consequences were of what she'd said we have to remember, I mean, the, the, the cell that they were probably in is still there in Lancaster mm -hmm. Castle. They can take you down the steps on a special visit and shut the door. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Some of them yeah. were in there for months. Mm -hmm. They had beliefs about evil spirits mm -hmm. and devils and so forth. I mean, who of us would not start, you know, thinking, oh, yeah. things, seeing things, confessing to things after several months yes. in those circumstances? I mean, it is a to torture. Yeah. And there are no lawyers. They're suddenly brought out because the, the law puts a premium not on, you know, being able to see the evidence and mount a sophisticated defence with professional help. That would be cheating. The, the law is you confront the accused person with their accuser for the first time in court and see what happens, see whether they look guilty. And that's why you have a jury. The jury will know whether they look guilty or not. This is what a citizen jury is supposed to do, not, not, not uh, you know, not make complicated decisions about minute legal arguments as they have to now. Um, they can tell who the guilty ones are when they're when they're confronted. There's a certain rough community justice and common sense in that, actually. One other thing I think to say about the trial, um, Kate, you were talking about performance earlier on, and there is a real performance which is saved to the end of the trial, when Alison Davis, who, who, who was the subject of the first accusation for having allegedly bewitched a peddler who fell down with something that we would now recognise as a stroke, you know, or paralysed down his left side and so on, yeah. um, is actually faced in court with his peddler who's recovered, but not completely. And Thomas Potts describes the scene. He comes in and he's still limping and everybody's so sorry for him. And uh, Alison Davis is then asked, you know, did you curse this man? And essentially she says, yes. She says, yes, I, 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 you know, we had a row and in my heart I wished him evil. At the time, in fact, you know, at the time when she was interrogated, she, she, she said, can you undo this? And she says, no, I can't. I can't. But my grandmother might be able to you know yeah. I, I seems to believe she's inherited her grandmother's ability to curse people mm. maybe, my, maybe my grandmother can and then in court later she's again confronted with the peddler and uh, she in fact breaks down and confesses again and she begs forgiveness of the peddler and the peddler seeing her forgives her now normally in early modern law if you would come to a moment like that in a trial and the accused and the accuser had confronted each other. There'd been this dramatic moment and the accuser had wanted to forgive the accused. Nine times out of 10, the accused would have been let off. It would have been seen that just justice had been done. The court yeah. had fulfilled its function. People were rarely sent to their deaths unless they were you know, really incorrigible. And yet the judge nonetheless condemns Alice to death. And I think this older idea of if you confess, if you're reconciled by, by your neighbours, then the, the sin is gone. You know, that, that's, a, that's probably a pretty common idea of community justice. And, and uh, yeah. 
I guess this was what caused a lot of the protests and complaints afterwards. But under the Witchcraft Act, if she has confessed that some black dog or devil came to her and tempted her to, to curse this man, that's it. End of story. We don't need yeah. anything else. And so this new form of justice, I think, is not is not well understood. And the drama, the performance of the court, you know, this old Catholic style community justice is not enough to cope with the new originally Catholic, now Puritan idea that that consorting with evil spirits is automatically punishable by death. Just sort of touching on what you said about the capital punishment, um, this is one thing that, that perhaps you could clear up for me, because it's always been my understanding that in England we didn't burn witches. No. It, it is a common misconception, isn't it? Witches were burned under the Heresy Acts, because mm. heresy, the sin, had to be burnt out, which yep. is the same reason why Queen Mary burnt Protestants. That was heresy as well. Uh, so probably English witches had been burnt under the Heresy Act, but under the Witchcraft Acts mm. from Henry onwards, witchcraft is a crime and it's published by no, punished by normal mm. hanging. On the continent, they burn witches because on the continent in Catholic countries, they still have heresy. They're being pun punished for heresy. Yeah. And in fact, I think even Queen Elizabeth did burn a couple of heretics. I think extreme Protestant heretics, but that, that, that was unusual. Interestingly, women could still be burnt technically for what was called petty treason, murdering their husbands. But it was normal custom by the 17th century, if if that happened, that the woman would be hanged or executed mm. first and then the body burnt afterwards. The, I think eight, of the ten, eight out of the ten are women, and it's clear from the sorts of things that are said about them, the witchcraft is overwhelmingly a female crime. But it's not legally exclusively mm. a female crime, and some men get caught in the net for, for various reasons. So I don't think I don't think that undercuts a feminist interpretation mm. of of witchcraft it just qualifies it a little bit yeah. um and in the case of the, the lancaster ones the two men one is james davis the teenage boy who has clearly you know made a probably made a had been having discussions with his younger sister and james doesn't testify against Janet, but Janet testifies against james she's younger she's more impressionable and james also talks about a black dog that his grandmother had or his mother had and and seems to have had something to do with this black dog himself and so james is is convicted for consorting with evil spirits but Janet isn't and then i think there is um at the malkin town meeting on suppose on good friday and of course you know you shouldn't be meeting on good friday you should be going to church on good friday yeah. and not eating and drinking with your neighbors even if it is a question of trying to work out what to do with family members who are been putting in the castle for witchcraft. But there's even that element of the, yeah. the meeting uh, meat as well, isn't there? Yes, still steals a sheep. So, so in, in yeah. all sorts of ways, this is this is not not the right thing. Uh, but several of those whose own, I think five five of those executed are executed solely on the basis that that they were at this meeting and therefore part of a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And one of those happens to be male, a husband, a husband and wife, I think are executed for that but in neither case neither james nor this guy are actually accused of doing any of the sorts of things that the the the, the main pendle witches were and we, we have an intriguing document um it's it's one of the later ones it's from 1689 it's probably the latest one that we have which is it's actually a court sessions petition so it's it's a woman called marjorie carley who's petitioning the court for relief mm. because her husband is in lancaster castle accused of witchcraft and she has three children under the age of five and is unable to support her family and also her husband. Does this bring us around quite neatly to the Witch of Wood Plumpton? She is one of our, our later witches. Her case is approached from the other direction, really, because the legend of the Witch of Wood Plumpton is one of those sort of Lancashire staples that gets trotted out alongside boggarts of Coal Clough and um, the Miley Tunnel Ghost at Preston and a couple of the others. Uh, it's a very localised legend, but essentially there's a woman in Wood Plumpton who was a witch. And there is a burial site in St Anne's Church and it's there's basically a big stone and the little, little plastic plaque says underneath this stone is buried the witch of Wood Plumpton. And so it's it's always been around, but I did a bit of a, a look prompted by somebody's inquiry. I thought I'll see where the legend first comes from and see if there's anything in our collections that may or may not support it. Now, we knew 
that there was an entry in the St Anne's burial registers for 1705, which is uh, Marjorie Hilton of Catforth was buried on the 2nd May 1705. We have got a book in our library collection that is called the Haydock Papers and its subtitle is A Glimpse into English Catholic Life by Joseph Gillow, published in 1888. So 1888 is pretty late for a, a legend to have developed. The, the legend states that this this woman is variously known. She's either known as Marjorie Hilton or Mag Shelton. And the legend basically goes that she was a fearsome hag. She lived in a wretched hovel called Cuckoo Hall in Wesham. Uh, she lived on porridge, boiled grains, foraged herbs, which again is sounding like the sort of thing that somebody might go round to the doors of the local people and, and beg a bit of pottage here and a bit of food there. She plagued her neighbours. There was sour milk, lame cattle. There was all sorts of other things, including enchanted cows. And she was essentially run out of Wesham. And William Haydock was Lord of Cotton, and he particularly liked hunting. And Mag promised that if he gave her somewhere to live, she would make sure that there was always a hare for him to course. But it would only work if he promised not to release a certain black hound. And of course, it all goes horribly wrong and the black hound is released and it chases the hare and it nips at its toes. And forever after, the witch always walked with a limp. So, so far, so similar to quite a few other things. What makes it different is that we had a look and we've actually found some records in the quarter sessions. So we're back to our quarter sessions again, which do talk about a woman called Marjorie Hilton of Wood Plumpton. And the first is May 1694. It describes her as a poor, impotent woman uh, who has no visible means of support. And she's awarded two, two shillings, sixpence every quarter to be paid by the overseers of Catforth. The second document is September 1698, when she's taken up as a vagrant in Wharton. And the court orders her return to Wood Plumpton, which is her designated place of settlement, there to be put to labour or otherwise provided for as by law she ought. She doesn't last long. She dies in 1705. But we've got this position of an indigent woman, no means of support, no family network. She's probably gone begging, which is why she's ended up in Wharton which is not a huge distance from Catforth. And St Anne's Parish Church is the parish church for Catforth. So that's why she's buried there. What I'm intrigued by is there's no mention of witchcraft in association with her in the quarter session records. She's just a poor woman. How in about 150 years did she become a witch? So it's almost like the, the reverse of what we've been talking about. We we know these people are accused of witchcraft um, because of the evidence, what the evidence tells us. In this case, the evidence is things that tell us nothing about witchcraft. And then what seems to be a fairly strongly rooted legend. It's It's one of those things that I think gives us a different perspective. This is kind of late in the Lancashire witch tradition. It's interesting to see where the, the possible links come. And having had a bit of a look at the Haydock papers, which is where this supposed legend first appears in print, it's about Catholicism. And the actual the book is a description of the work of a Catholic priest and his family. And it's really partisan. So in the insta in the first instance, it calls William III, the Dutch king who came in, was invited in following the Glorious Revolution. As the Dutch intruder, William Haydock is given kudos for being the person who supplied the horse, which threw William III, causing his death a few years later. So in that sense, he's a Catholic hero. 
apparently, according to the, the legend, the witch is exorcised because she won't stay buried. She gets buried in Wood Plumpton graveyard. She won't stay buried. She keeps popping up. So she's buried either head down or face down. And she's exorcised by William Haydock's priest, who of course will be Catholic. So have we got a Catholic Protestant narrative? Have we got indigent old woman local community narrative? Do some of these things offer us a sort of different or even a, a kind of confirmation of the same perspective of some of the things that we've been talking about here? It's just an odd one. But whether that's because it was written in the 1880s or whether it's something that's come down earlier and she was just a name that was picked out we can't be sure but it was finding those court session records that seemed to lend some credence to the notion that yes there was a poor woman who of this name who lived in this place who had some transgressive qualities and somehow she's popped up years later as a witch I have no, but it is interesting that this Catholic Protestant uh, thing is, is still going on much, much later and that witchcraft cases are being yeah. later interpreted in that light. And that was the thing that the social interpretation of witchcraft missed. It missed this whole yeah. ideological um, element. And I think what the trial of the Lancashire witches shows us is that we need both. Yeah. To, it's certainly to explain mass trials. You can explain smaller accusations as you know, village charity and and and, uh, and charity gone wrong and, and that kind of thing socially but for the larger cases uh, for, for this Lancashire witches and certainly later for the um uh, for the witch fighter general trials in the 1640s uh, which take place when there's a breakdown in the civil war you need ideological explanations as well and the, I think the case of the Lancashire witches is 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 not only the best document but it's also the richest collection of different motive motives and circumstances and kinds of explanation and also of tragic and dramatic individual stories and courtroom dramas it really does have everything sadly for the victims <laughs> information about the 1612 witch trials, read Thomas Potts' The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster, modernised and introduced by Robert Poole and published by Palatine Books, 2011. You'll also find essays around witchcraft in Lancashire in the Lancashire Witches Histories and Stories, edited by Robert Poole and published by Manchester University Press in 2002.